The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and uh, welcome to Spirit Matters, where we have deep and engaging conversations with a diverse range of wise people, spiritual teachers, and experts of various kinds to help you along your own spiritual path. This is, I should add, uh, the reboot of Spirit Matters uh, that I used to co-host with Dennis Ramundi, which is now uh, an archive-only We stopped doing shows, but I uh, invite you to go to spiritmatterstalk.com where you'll find almost 300 interviews that we compiled over the years with uh, extraordinary people, including a couple with today's guest on the new Spirit Matters, someone I always enjoy uh, talking to, uh, Mark Nepo. Mark, as many of you know, is a poet, a spiritual teacher, a gifted storyteller, and a prolific author whose 25 books have sold more than a million copies. The best known of them was the Book of Awakening, which topped the New York Times list. And the latest is uh, Surviving Storms, Finding the Strength to Meet Adversity. And he just came out with a volume of his poetry titled The Half-Life of Angels. We'll talk all about those things and more. Mark, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Oh, it's wonderful to be back with you. Thank you so much. Let's start um, with your new book of poems, which I just received a few days ago, which is actually three books of poems in one. Um, Tell us uh, why you assembled them at this time. And uh, because apparently they span half a century or so of poetry, right? Well, yeah. So, so, you know, as I, as I've turned 72 this year and, uh, and you know, when I met someone our age, when I was younger, I thought they were ancient. Doesn't uh, it hold seem on, so- Mark, uh, your volume just dipped. Maybe you can restart again. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, can you hear me okay now? Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you know, I mean, I recently, this year, I turned 72, um, which 
You know, when I met someone my our age when I was younger, I thought they were ancient. It doesn't seem yeah. so old now. <laughs> and, you know, at this time, I'm, I'm really looking, I spent during the pandemic a lot of time trying to organize uh, my life's poetry. And, and that spans 50 years. And it's leading to several volumes where I'm using this structure of having three books of poems in one volume. And this is the first of those which uh, the Half-Life of Angels, which has poems from the last 20 years, from my 50s and 60s. So it's, I'm very grateful and very touched to have a, a book from this period of my life come out now with, with uh, that, because poetry, as we've talked before, for me, poetry isn't how lines are arranged on a page. Poetry is the unexpected utterance of the soul. And poetry, as poems really is where I do my deepest diving and exploring and often retrieve <clears throat> metaphors and stories and quite deep questions that I then uh, proceed to explore more deeply in what become chapters in my quote nonfiction books. Uh, but for me, it's all poetry. It's just a different mm. shaped canvas. It's my publishers who say, oh, this is nonfiction. Oh, this is poetry. Why the title? It's such a, a catchy title, The Half-Life of Angels, which uh, is provocative in itself. Well, thank you. And this is a good example. I, this was a very intuitive title that I retrieved before really I knew it was right. But then I, as I put the book together, I had to keep an ear out. What does it really mean? And I discovered it as I put the book together that... It, to me, it is that synapse of life force, that life force arcs between all living things. What, you know, you think of that, that you know, uh, memorialized image of on the Sistine Chapel ceiling where God and Adam and that little space between their fingers. That's that synapse of care, of life force, of kindness, of inquiry that that arcs between living things between our giving attention and receiving an insight, that's, or discovering love, or, you know, it's interesting, you know, physicists will call it energy and sages call it love, <laughs> but that, that arc, that synapse, that's the half-life of angels, metaphorically for me. And all the poems in this book explore and affirm that myst mysterious arc of, of life force. Um. In the uh, press materials for the book, uh, you refer to the spark of becoming. Is that what you mean by the the synapse? Yes, that... yes, absolutely. And and in the in the opening of the book, I ref thank you for reminding me of that because that really that spark of becoming. You know, there's a there's a wonderful passage about the story of Moses that when he first went up to to meet with God and and he said, you know, what's your, what's your name? Like, what should I call you? You know, and, and God said, I am becoming. That was the sentence. And so right away, that offers us a, a riddle, if you will, but also a model for our life on earth. Because if you hear that as a noun, God is saying, I am the process of becoming. The process of becoming is divine. 
hmm. and that lives in each of us. But he, you also could hear it as a verb saying, God saying, you know what? I'm not finished yet either. I am still becoming. And this is a model for you on earth, both being the pro that we are never finished. And, and it is always the process of becoming that is transformational, that is divine, that reveals the divine. You um, translated that um, moment in the Old Testament as uh, I am becoming. I have heard it translated as I am that I am. Yes, yes, I've heard that too. Yeah. Is that the same sentence or is that to you? You know, I uh, don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. But I think that both of them, uh, both renditions offer us models for, be, for being truly here. I am that I am. We, we spend so, isn't this the process of individuation that Carl Jung so wonderfully pointed up? We keep, we keep becoming and shedding roles, distinctions, things that are put on us till we are what we are. And yet we're always, I am. It's fascinating that uh, there could be these uh, uh, two different, uh, I suppose, translations or interpretations of the same um, essential moment in, in Judeo-Christian lore um, that sort of mirror what in the East would call, uh, they would call the, uh, the two aspects of the divine, the eternal being unchanging, unmanifest, I am, and becoming <laughs> the imminent, the transcendent, yes. the imminent. Yes, and I think it's it's you know I think in our identity it's it's a paradox, of course, that we continually enter um, in our life, and you know, for I can give a good example for me, you know, in my as you know from my other work that in my early thirties I almost died from a rare form of lymphoma. And before that, my identity was really rooted in being a poet with a capital P, you know. And of course, being turned inside out and upside down, and it was very disorienting. I was so grateful to still be here, but I was adrift on the other side. Uh, I was thrown more into I am that I am, and I lost my drive for becoming. And where am I? Where's my gift? What do I... And I discovered that, of course, being a poet with a small p is the way that I always meet the world. But I was discovering I was a nameless spirit. And so uh, I kept becoming, and, and, and one metaphor for this constant evolution in us for me is a potted plant. You know, when we, we take care of a potted plant, the reward is that you have to repot it. If you don't, its roots become bound and it dies. And so, so too with our, I am that I am until I grow enough that the pot's too small, the identity's too small. And so I had to crack the pot of poet with a capital P to discover that I, oh, I'm this nameless spirit that I use poetry to reveal spirit through me, 
And then I had to repot myself. And so, you know, it's interesting uh, uh, along these lines. So, you know, I love this quote from Muhammad Ali, who said, if you're the same person at 50 as you were at 20, you've wasted 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, so we keep repotting to get closer to I think we paradoxically we keep becoming till we can get closer to I am what I am. Interesting. Um, and was that um, was the illness a sort of a wake up call or a uh, catalyst for uh, embarking on a, a different chapter of your I, life? And is that absolutely. when you started writing what we would normally call prose, which of course. Uh, turns out to be uh, more remunerative than poetry. <laughs> yeah. Well, always, always. Um, but but not, not you know, uh, as life-giving. Poetry is the source, How again, mm. as the unexpected utterance. But yes, that was, you know, I, I have come, for me, it was that cancer journey, that, that almost dying, that was a, a catalyst. And I think... To back up for a second, I think archetypally, every person is met uh, with an opportunity to be dropped into the depth of life where our spiritual journey really begins. And often it is something that's difficult or life-threatening, but it also could be surprise and wonder and love and, and joy and beauty. So it's not to deify suffering. It's you know, that happened to be it for me. So I speak about that as a catalyst. Um, But it really, you know, apparently the great poet Rilke from his letters and things, uh, it seemed like he had no external catalyst. He was taking notes in an attic in an apartment in Paris. And all of a sudden, you know, between between cups of coffee, the rug was pulled out from under him. He said, wait a minute, what, something's changed. What's Mm -hmm. going on? And I think, you know, for me, uh, be, being raised Jewish, and I have a great tie to my Jewish heritage, to our Jewish heritage, but almost dying, I was blessed to have people from all walks of life, formal and informal, including atheists, um, offer me some kind of blessing and help and kindness. And so on the other side, I was not and am not all these years later wise enough to know what worked and what didn't and so i was challenged to believe in everything Mm. and so all my work since then i've been a student of all paths and um and i have believed in the common center of all paths the unique gifts of each um and that's been at the heart of all my poetry and my my teachings and you know my other books I, I think it's this is really interesting, Phil, that um, so I I went while I feel have felt a tie to the Jewish heritage as a young man, I went on my own way to discover my own way of being and expressing um, and did that. And then many, many years later in my 50s, I had a wonderful mentor and friend. Uh, also Jewish, a child of the Holocaust, Joel Elkies. He lived to be 102. He was uh, one of the fathers of psychopharmacology and was a painter. And uh, 
so in my late 50s um when we when we first met and we were talking about these things and his experience of being jewish and mine and he gave me a slim book by abraham heschel called the the uh the earth is the lord's hmm. and what that book is about is heschel um was what's his first very first book he was trying to chronicle the history of the eastern european jewish mind because he sensed he knew that the holocaust was coming and so i read this book and i'll be damned if i don't discover that's how my mind works mm. after all these years i go my own way to wind up through my own experience right smack in the middle of my tribe ah interesting and isn't that the process of individuation that we become who we are so we can discover that we are each other yeah that's quite true and the tribe is bigger than we think it is absolutely uh, um you mentioned rilke uh one of the questions i had for you and i'll leap to it now because you mentioned him uh, he was an inspiration for me, his letters to a young poet, that, that very slim volume, uh, uh, just uh, remember it blowing my mind as an aspiring writer. And, and just, you know, on the uh, uh, early days of my own spiritual path, because it's a deeply spiritual book in, in, in addition to being uh, uh, the best advice possible for a writer <laughs> what um was rilke an inspiration for you and and what other uh, poets inspired you sure thank you so i'd say the two great influences on me were rilke and pablo neruda uh, and, and and whitman and Whit, Walt whitman mm, mm. Uh, well and 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 and, and you know e. <laughs> Cummings. Um, but let's start with rilke and neruda and yes i i felt like rilke had, was such a interior witness of being everything he held it's like it's like in, instead of an x-ray machine he was a he, he x-rayed the being of things and somehow in quite beautiful and simple ways showed look here look how this is glowing with spirit look at this and um and so i remember feeling uh for the first time in reading him that that sense of uh he was a guide into the stillness mm. he was a guide into the now pablo neruda on the other hand was so amazing i i um i remember i was a uh, i was in graduate school uh, in my early 20s and my oldest friend robert who i just spoke to yesterday who's also a poet he was working in a job and and he had a spanish colleague and all of a sudden he showed up one day a friday afternoon he had this book that was uh, translations of Neruda and we sat on a hill outside of Albany University in the spring and uh I had never heard I had never heard a voice like that and yet mm. I felt I was of that tribe mm. I certainly had no way to write like that but I felt such oh my god I know this voice I, be I belong and I would 
I wouldn't, he had borrowed the book. I couldn't let it out of my sight. I said, I'll buy him another book. I can't, I'm sorry. I can't let go of this. I can't let go. I have it here in my study still. <laughs> I did yeah. buy, I, I didn't steal it. I did buy a replacement. <laughs> That's great. I'll have to go back and uh, revisit Neruda now. Um, you also mentioned Whitman. What was it about Whitman, who I have to do some research about? Um, what was it about Whitman that uh, drew you to him and inspired you? And I'm saying all this, listeners, in hopes that uh, you'll uh, you'll take some of this inspiration and uh, discover or rediscover some of these great poets. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, and let me say, as I talk about Whitman and follow up what you just invited, Phil, is that I, I really, even with my own poetry, I invite readers and other writers who are interested in, in these terrains, not to look at other poems or my poems as destinations, but it's as if, if a poem of mine or Whitman's or Neruda, it's as if it leads you to a view from a cliff or from the shore. So when you are there, record and write and be in conversation with what you see the poem says this is here come with me to this spot this is what i see oh my god i want to share it with you now you be in conversation and explore what you see there because all the poems are 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 guides to the ineffable and so you know so one of the things that whitman was so to me two things is he really so looked at um, his self as the lens with, we all have this one self, which is our lens to the world. And he really thoroughly explored the lens of the eye. And not in a in me, 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 but a no as this is what I see through. This is what I feel through. This is the thing, the membrane between me as a part and life as a whole. And so that was an amazing uh, revelation for me as a young man. And also, he was the first one I came across, and maybe the first one to do it. Uh, he treated the cities and and all the creation that we have done as human beings as its own nature. He, he went through the streets of Manhattan uh, with the same reverence as he went through the, the, the forest and the canyons. And, and you could feel that. And I've always felt, you know, I, am, I have always been a great, I have so many things I learned from nature. But, you know, being a Jewish kid from Brooklyn, I'm there on a visa. I, I'm not a permanent resident. I, I've never been completely comfortable while I am comfortable learning from it. And whenever I go, like I love my wife and I love when we get to go to New York, I feel like I'm in the human forest there. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so Whitman was my guide on how to be, be like that. Um, and I encourage anyone listening, even if you're not a writer, just for your own exploration, 
of who you are, I would encourage reading Whitman's Song of Myself, which has 57 chapters, and after each one, be in conversation with it. Mm. When it speaks to you, what do you see? What do you feel? Where does that live or not live in you? Is it familiar? Is it strange? And I think it's quite an amazing journey uh, of self introspection to to use Whitman as a guide that way. Fascinating. Um, I have two responses. One, as a kid from Brooklyn, um, <laughs> where where nature was essentially the, the trees in the public park, if you were lucky enough to live near one. Uh, I, you know, I haven't lived in New York for uh, 50 years now, or 40 some odd, but um, whenever I go back, um, it's, it's familiar terrain. It's like, you know, I can negotiate the streets and the subways and the, all that uh, instinctively in ways, you know, uh, I live near the woods right now and uh, I could never walk in the woods in the way I could walk in city <laughs> streets, even though it, it's, you know, it gives me what I, it, it nourishes me and I love it. Um, I always, we think of Whitman as uh, in the same breath as Emerson and Thoreau. And, and what you just said, it's sort of, um, they were kindred spirits, but you're right. The other two spoke the voice of the woods, the New England yes. woods. That was their inspiration. That's where they saw the divine. Whitman saw it in the streets and in the, in the, in the hurly burly of, of, uh, you know, late ninth, late nineteenth century uh, New York City, and in the in the nitty gritty of of existence in that urban setting, and he saw the divine there. And I I, I have always uh, myself found found that in those 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 details. And I also want to share with you. This is just kind of synchronistic, but um, I don't, do you know Mark Matusek? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mark just is publishing, I don't know if you're aware of uh, a book on Emerson for modern times called oh. Lessons, Lessons from an American Stoic. It's coming out in June from Harper One. I, I was able to read a galley. I just finished endorsing it. I think it's a great book and just would encourage you to, to have a conversation with Mark. Um, I think I think he does a remarkable job of mm. of. Uh, of bringing his own wisdom and guide and bringing shining a light on on Emerson in a way that's so relevant to us today. Great, thank you. I I think I interviewed Mark uh, on the previous iteration of Spirit Matters, so I'll look into that. And listeners, you just got a a book recommendation from the Mark we're sp uh, speaking with now. Tell <laughs> tell me this, uh, Mark. Um, I'm interested uh, in the intersection or the similarities uh, and the complementarity of uh, classical, you know, what we think of as spiritual experience and the, the uh, and creativity, the, the inspiration of, of uh, there's, there's connection there. 
I've written mostly nonfiction, but when I work on fiction, I've published a novel, I'm working on another novel now. It's, it's a different feeling and a different experience from writing uh, nonfiction. You write poetry, you've written so much nonfiction. How do you see the difference and how do you see that's, that link between uh, uh, spiritual experience and the, yeah, and the so act thank, of creation? Yeah, thank you. So let me, uh, let me start with the connection between creativity and spirituality and then move to the forms for, for me. And, um, and I, I totally agree. I think I have discovered over my life that what I have learned from the creative process I often share in my teaching because it's really the introspective process. I just happen to write it down that there's mm -hmm. so many similarities that are fruitful. And so what, you know, one writer, and I actually, one of my books, drinking from the river of light, it, the entire book explores this question mm. um, and uh, about the life of expression and how the life of expression um, is what, Clean, clears us out so we are conduits for oneness and spirit and it's through our authenticity that we get to experience oneness and that's why it's so important we can conceptualize it that's not the same thing and we get to inhabit it when we by expressing and i think definitely this goes back to my cancer journey where i forget writing poems and everything. I was writing like climbing a rope of expression to get to tomorrow. Mm. It was the one gift I realized I had, the one tool that wouldn't fail me. And so that kept me vital. That kept me connected when I needed it most. And so, you know, the image for me is it, that I use in the beginning of drinking from the river of light is, you know, uh, as we inhale and exhale, the heart inhales by feeling and perceiving, and it exhales by expressing. Mm. And so when we meditate, we don't meditate to become great breathers. We <laughs> meditate to become clear vessels. And likewise, when we write, we don't write to become great. We write to become clear. If we're authentic, we'll probably do good work. You know, but if I aspire only to greatness, uh, I, I may not do such good work. And and so that was a big, big turn for me. And I feel that the the so when I went to publish that book at the last minute, you know, the subtitle Drinking from the River of Light, The Life of Expression and the uh, distributor, which was it was published with Sounds True, but the Macmillan, the distributor, the last minute they said well can you call it the uh create the life of creative expression i said no you're missing the whole point <laughs> no <laughs> explain the, yeah well it's the life of expression that matters it's not just reserved for people who are creative by being expressive we get in touch with our creativity and that's so it's really about the expressive journey of healing more than about producing great art. So an example, my father, who was not a writer, but he was a, uh, a master woodworker. 
and he he built a, a 30 foot sailboat i spent a lot of my youth on and mm. um and he would later he he made these uh these half mod these model ships he would get blueprints from like sailing ships of the 1800s and then he'd build them to scale and so he would be spend hours with little tweezers and rigging and making tiny masts and and i remember this is a chapter in one of my books called the secret life of detail i remember being a boy like 10 9 or 10 sitting on the basement steps he didn't know i was watching him watching him immersed in this and he didn't know he was teaching it and i didn't know i was learning it till years later but he was teaching me not excellence but immersion mm -hmm. he was so immersed that he was in the moment of everyone who ever built a boat mm -hmm. and that's why we express that's why we write and and so it's about being true not great now now to the forms and i totally honor that every form is its own craft you know there are people who devote their lives to being a novelist or a poet or a playwright and that is you know amazing and worthy for me it's evolved differently for me in service of what of this opening we're talking about and it goes all the way back to our about becoming what i am that i am that i am i have come to over the years see the genres as tools in a toolbox mm. and so i feel like my books or especially my nonfiction, again the publishers call it nonfiction. my prose uh my job i feel in service of that opening that authentic opening is to use whatever tool is necessary in one seamless form so if i need to look into history i will be scholarly if i need to tell a story i will be a short story writer for this phase if i need to be a poet i will go into the metaphors and into lyrics if i you know need yeah what auto memoir then i'll go there whatever tool is necessary and so i have over the years discovered and then have become a student of that way of using the genres um and so that's why it's kind of hard to place my prose interesting um yes because your po your prose tends to be very as if we could say that poetic and um and there were sections in some of the poems I, I read that I thought, well, if you punctuated differently, it would be prose. <laughs> sure, because it's about the it's about the it's about the depth of perception and feeling yeah. we explore, not the arrangement. And and this goes back to uh, just say you know, along these lines before we move on is the notion of revision. We have come to understand in a craft way that revision is the pruning and you know economizing of language and getting rid of excess that's not what it really means it means going back to the original vision mm -hmm. so if i at this point in my life 
if I find an expression is very difficult, it's not there, that's more of a sign to me that I wasn't open-hearted and present enough in the first place, rather than messing with it, go back to the original vision, open my heart more, and look again. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24 through 26, at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. You, you're touching on what was actually going to be my next question and my last in this line, because I want to get to your uh, other book, Surviving Storms. Um, you, you note in uh, the introduction or the press material or something that you retrieve poems rather than author them, which sort of mirrors what so many uh, the people in the arts say is is the process of uh, things happening, of of things, <laughs> forms and images and words, uh, ideas being somehow uh, in in the present in the universe, and you're you happen to be the one who retrieves them, and if you're you know you write them down, you paint them, you whatever. Um, Talk about that and the subsequent process of engaging the craft and fine-tuning. Sure. Uh, yeah, thank you. So, you know, recently in the last year or so, I, I read a quote from James Taylor mm. who said, you know, um, I, I haven't really, um, you know, created these songs. I'm just, I just heard them first. Mm-hmm. And so I would say for me that when I say retrieve, because I feel it is a process of discovery and not invention. And I feel therefore every, it, all creativity is about relationship, relationship to the unknown, relationship to what is unseen, uh, to helping making that scene or bearing witness to what is. And so um, I say retrieve, I'm not channeling, but it's not just coming from me either. Yeah. And this is where I feel that the the work of being authentic, of processing feelings and thoughts and questions and confusions and wonder clears us out so that we are a open vessel then to connect with and receive life other than us. And so that that process is and so so a good example is like you know when i come upon the end image of, in a poem it's not that i said oh this would be a great place to end no 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 if i am honest and authentic i am pursuing some inquiry and if i'm am authentic authentic i will often be rewarded with an image or an insight that then becomes my teacher Hmm. Now I have to be with it. So it's a process of discovery and honoring what I know is true 
and then staying in relationship with it. There's a wonderful uh, poem by Denise Levertov called The Secret. And in it, she, she, it's a wonderful poem. She says, she's giving a reading at a college. And just before the reading, two undergraduate girls come in, young ladies, and uh, they come running up to her excited. They say, oh, thank you, thank you. We discovered the secret of life in a line in one of your poems. Thank you. We can't stay for the reading, but thank you so much. <laughs> and, and she, in the poem, she's, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute you didn't tell me the secret you didn't even tell me the poem or the line wait and and then she thanks the end poem ends by her thing i thank them for discovering the secret for believing there isn't even a secret and for finding it and for forgetting it over and over again and <laughs> and i love that because it says no no just because an expression comes through we need each other to discover what it means. Just because I wrote these poems or retrieved them doesn't mean I know what they mean. And so the process of revision and crafting, so this was a very interesting process in this book, gathering poems from my 50s and 60s and looking back. And so two things that were really, one is very obvious and, you know, and humbling, of course, from just over time, you know, in the beginning, a couple of things here that I think are important for our listeners. So one is in the very beginning, like all young writers, I saw something and I tried to say it. And then I looked and I said, well, that's not it. <laughs> and then I try again. I go, well, that, that's not it either. Six, seven times I go, I get so frustrated. I can see it. Why can't I say it? Well, all these years later, I mean, maybe I'm a little closer. But now the difference is, Phil, I see it and I try to say it and I see it and I try to say it. And instead of being frustrated, I say, thank you for these seven poems. <laughs> thank you, because we'll never the only things worth the, the two things worth writing. Of, the things worth writing about are the things that are unsayable. And bearing witness to what is. So that's when metaphor gets in. You know, Pablo Neruda had this wonderful, when he was in uh, Spain in the 30s during the, the Spanish Civil War, he saw some horrible things and he has a line in a poem. Um, and the line is, the blood of the children on the sidewalk is like the blood of children on a sidewalk. Mm -hmm. And I feel there's a whole, yeah, so... Yeah. No, no, no. There, metaphor gets in the way. Speaking of which, do you uh, have to kill your darlings every once in a while? Well, you know, I, I, I think I, I am not, I'm not tied to perfection. So, um, I do. And here, here's a fascinating <laughs> example of not killing the darlings, but. Um, of the ama this amazing process that we have to be patient to. So probably 15 years ago, I wrote a poem, which is in the other book, the three volume book, The Way Under the Way, which came out in 2015 or 16, I think. But so, so 15 years ago or so, I wrote this poem. And at the end of the poem, the line came, instead of wings, God gave us love. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, I didn't want to lose that line. And uh, then when I, about five, six, seven years later, when that book was coming out and I had to 
really kind of go over everything. Well, then when I looked at that poem, I realized, you know, that poem brought midwife that line, but the poem ended before that line. Ah. And, you know, seven years later, I could see that. So I said, well, okay, I'm not, that's not the end of the poem. So I took it off. I typed it on a Word document all by itself so I wouldn't lose it, not knowing what I would use it for. So now we go forward to 2020. And when I was finishing the Book of Soul, which was just before Surviving Storms, I got through the whole book in draft and I wanted, I needed a, a story that was concluding the entire exploration. And so this story came and I followed the story and I got to the end of the story, which was the end of the book. And that line was the end of that book. Fabulous. That's great. Nothing's wasted. But how, but, and also Phil, like I met that line years before I met the book. It was the last line. Right. To, right. I could have but, easily thrown it away. I missed but it. But you were authentic enough and real enough to take, something that you knew was a gem and say, I can't, it, it doesn't fit here. And, and that's, that's the kind of ruthlessness we often have to have and not say, but I, I, I just, I really want to show that to people. <laughs> well, and this is the, this is the thing that, you know, in looking at earlier poems, you know, it's like you're diving and you're pulling, you hopefully bring up a treasure. And of course, in the beginning, you think everything that comes up is you don't want to lose any of it. So, but okay. But looking at it all these years later, oh, so I brought up this treasure. Well, there's seaweed around it. Oh, I actually hooked a tire as well. You know what? <laughs> they don't really belong there. I think I can get rid of them now. So my advice now <laughs> to writers is wait 30 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It becomes so clear. It becomes I... so clear. The, the I other distinction I, I would make around this that was so fascinating, and one's not better than the other, but early on, I was diving, if you will, and bringing up things I found in the deep to share. Somewhere along the way, I can't pinpoint where, I live in the deep. So now the poems invite you to come and visit. Hmm. And there's just a different, a different sense. And one's not better than the other. It's always wonderful to bring things up from the deep. But, but they're, so these poems, especially in this book, The Half-Life, I think are different um, that way. I got it. Thanks. And listeners, you've been getting uh, a lot of wonderful insight and gems into the process, uh, not just of writing poems or prose, but of any act of creativity that uh, you engage in. But I want to switch now or shift to your, uh, your most recent, if, if you'll excuse the term, nonfiction <laughs> book, <laughs> a book of prose, Surviving Storms, subtitle Finding the Strength to Meet Adversity. Um, this came out some months ago. And um, many of our listeners may have already discovered it, but tell us what prompted this. You, you'd already written more than 20 books. 
Um, you knew you had an audience. Um, wh what sparked this angle and what, why was it, uh, why did it, why were you compelled to write it at that time? Yeah, you know, I started the book before the pandemic and and of course it was deeply affected by the pandemic and and i think that um you know the opening chapter of the book is the old world is gone and i think that you know that's one of the things that the pandemic and i and i remember this really tied to an er earlier moment in my cancer journey when i was first diagnosed and um and I went to a doctor who told me I had cancer and I said, you must have the wrong file. Can you look again? <laughs> you know? And, uh, and was terrified. And, and, but when I left that office, the door I had come through to keep that appointment was gone. Mm. There was no way back to life before that appointment. And as frustrated and as in denial and as fearful as parts of our society, global society have been, I think the pandemic has done the same thing. The old world is gone. There's no going back. There's only loving each other forward. And so this, my lifelong being a student of, of the harshness and the teaching of adversity and of the, led me to this notion of surviving storms and drawing on the, what I try to do in the book, as you know, um, in the first part of the book, the first, 30, 40 pages, I take my, my guess at the fault lines over the last several hundred years that, that have brought our society to where it is. And we're really a fractured society right now. And then try to lean on all the traditions as the tools that are available to us in our turn to heal and to move forward. And that's the spirit of the whole book is that, you know, these things, you know, there's a paradox, you know, you stars guide us, but you don't see them unless it's dark. They're there, mm -hmm. but we don't pay attention until we, they're there and they're there. And the tools of the spiritual tradition are not abstract once you need them. <laughs> mm. And so how do we personalize and move forward. And I think one of the great things uh, when I look at, at where we are as a society is that so much through social media, through the pandemic, uh, we are, many of us, so divorced from our direct connection to life. And I think in, it's simple but profound is we need to repair our direct connection to life. Because when you have a direct connection to this mystery we're talking about, this, this, this synapse of life force, um, then you have a reverence for life. And when you have a reverence for life, you can't do harm. And one of the things that so stunned me was seeing like so many people like insurrection on TV live. Forget all the politics. I was shocked and and horrified that here were people doing barbaric violence while at the same time taking pictures of themselves. Mm. And I thought, wow, this is so dissociative. I mean, so divorced, as if, as if they couldn't tell 
are they in real life or is this a video game mm -hmm. and if you are connected you have reverence and if you have reverence you can't do harm so how do we restore that and and there's this other paradox which i offer early in the book about which goes back to this moment uh, there was a, a a samurai in uh, the 1600s who after a lifetime of being a warrior put down his sword and apprenticed as a as an uh, apprentice poet with basho <laughs> i would have loved to talk to him like what happened <laughs> but his his kind of famous haiku and you may have heard it, it, it his name was masahide and his haiku, famous haiku was, uh, my barn having burned to the ground, I can see the moon more completely. Oh, wow. My barn having burned to the ground, I can see the moon more completely. And I, I think for me that those three lines hold this profound both and, this paradox, which is essential to the becoming and I am that I am. And that is... There's no minimizing the barn burning down. That's real. There's grief. There's loss. I mean, there's no skipping over that or, or reframing it. And now that it has burned down, I am open to a vastness I didn't know before. Now, you that is uh, that does what haiku is supposed to do, condense volumes into <laughs> what 17 <laughs> syllables or whatever uh, and um but it, you're touched upon what was uh, my next question for you actually this the subtitle of surviving storms is finding the strength to meet adversity and um it occurs to me that you're you're guiding readers to not just meet adversity, but to take from diverse adversity uh, the seeds of growth and uh, evolution and transformation, and as in transformation of vision in that haiku. Am I correct in that? Yes. And, and how would you guide readers? What, what, what would you say are the keys to being able to to do that well i think the, i think the the keys to like no, nobody nobody wants to suffer nobody signs sign me up nobody <laughs> okay nobody wants to but and the 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 transitions of being broken open archetypally are the portals for transformation and I'm not advocating suffering. We're more like describing spiritual physics. It's like gravity. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get out of gravity. You're not going to get out. Uh, and I think that suffering uh, is to humans what erosion is to nature. And eventually, and that's not what we do to each other. This is the natural process of growing and breaking, of having those pots break and be repotted and how we have to go through these these difficult passages and of course while we're in it no it doesn't feel good would i like it no did i want to have cancer no um 
But this to me speaks to the functional faith in life. You know, I, I think, you know, Vaclav Havel, the, the uh, right, first president of the Czech Republic, who was a poet and a playwright, actual poet president, I loved his definition of hope. He said, hope is not the optimism that things will turn out well, but the belief that no matter how things turn out, they will have meaning. Mm. And that that's very helpful. That's very helpful. So I think the first thing in getting down to like everyday level for me, and again, what I share are examples, not instructions. This is just what I stumble with and have but when life and its difficulties always push us away, and our job is to lean back in and hold nothing back. Hmm. When life closes us, that's when we have to open. So we can practice being still and open and open-hearted, but we really have to inhabit it when it's most difficult when we're closed is when we need to open and when we fall down is when we need to get up and when we're afraid is when we need to get still and so how do we help each other how i think i think life is just difficult enough that we need each other <laughs> yeah. to ensure the journey of love um which is a good segue to um my what's probably my final question to you before we have to close. Um, many of us who have been on a spiritual path for many decades, now suddenly, uh, despite our uh, uh, denial, find ourselves as elders, um, are, uh, in my circles anyway, thinking about the intersection of the spiritual path as a unfoldment of, of the human being, the personality, and um, the collective, that we're not just uh, in this spiritual game for our personal uh, growth, but uh, we're also citizens and uh, members of communities and so forth. What do you see now as what uh, we're called upon to do, given the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Yeah, so th this, this leads to um, a, a, a quick parable that I could share as a way to uh, bring us to a close. But, but let me say, I feel very deeply that, that, that first, first a metaphor and then the parable. So the metaphor is, you know, in my body, uh, if I have one more healthy cell than toxic, I'm considered healthy. I'd like a lot more, as long as I got one. Well, I would offer that humanity is a global body and every soul is a cell in that body. And everything we do, including our conversation here, is keeping humanity healthy over being toxic. So everything we do matters. And, and so I think that... Uh, what good and i agree with you like what good is opening your eyes if you don't see and mm. what good is opening your heart if you don't love so there is an inextricable link between uh between inner work and service and care and so the parable is this there's there's two monks that are studying long and hard to uh because when they finish studying 
they're going to have an appointment with Buddha at the top of this mountain. And so the day comes and they, they go off and halfway up, one of them breaks his leg. So they spend the night and the other one's thinking, well, I'll make sure he's comfortable, but I don't want to miss my appointment with Buddha, you know. <laughs> well, in the morning, it's not so simple because the one who broke his leg isn't doing well. He's got a fever and it's clear you, he can't just be left there. And the parable stops there and, of course, says, what would you do? And when we have an age where more people will keep their appointment at the top of the mountain than care for their broken other, we have an age that engenders cruelty. And when we have an age where more people discover that tending their broken other is the summit, mm. we have an age that engenders compassion. And every one of us faces this choice every day. And it doesn't matter what you put on top of the mountain. Wisdom, God, financial wealth, secure, whatever. Okay. If you, you know, um, if you put that ahead of the gifts of true living, you're, you're starting your road to cruelty. A great way to end, Mark. I thank you. Thanks so much for all you've uh, offered the world over the years and what you've given our listeners today. Um, good luck with the new book. Listeners, Surviving Storms, Finding the Strength to Meet Adversity, and the collection of poems, The Half-Life of Angels. And you can find Mark at marknepo.com and find all the offerings he has coming up and uh, read his books and so forth. Mark, thanks again. And listeners, uh, thank you. Thank you for listening. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends. Email me with suggestions of uh, how we can do things better. And go to my website, get on my mailing list, and I promise you I will not besiege you with junk, but give you useful information from time to time. Thank you again. Thanks, Mark. Thank you all. And I'll see you next time. I'm Michelle Phillips, a celebrity makeup artist, beauty expert, self-confidence coach, and Hay House author. My podcast, Beauty and Beyond, is the place for women navigating the challenges of the aging process. Listen in for my professional advice, as well as my expert guests, as we share valuable tips, practical tools, and empowering resources to help you not only look amazing, but also live an amazing life part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and available wherever you get your podcasts.